0: Life off the Pendulum is the course of study for this fall semester in adult Bible class at Trinity Lutheran Church. In this study, Rev. Dr. Jim Von Busch will expose and explain what life on the Pendulum looks like and the many struggles and heartaches we encounter because of it. He will also share what life off the Pendulum can be, a life that trusts and rests in the abundant grace of God. Thank you for listening. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so blessed by your goodness and grace. And we need to be reminded, Father, because sometimes we get a mindset that says you're good if we like the way things are turning out. But the reality is, is you are good and always good. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to remember that every good and perfect gift comes from you. And so help us to, by faith, receive all that you give. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen so life off the pendulum week number four a little bit of review just trying to emphasize some of the things that are true about life on the pendulum first so then we can really understand what life off the pendulum is all about and what it can look like let me tell you that life on the pendulum is because of the fall we've discussed this uh, the past few weeks we look at the scriptures especially in genesis the opening chapter chapters and it's very clear that the reason we are living on this pendulum and the swing of the pendulum is because of our brokenness and the fall in the garden and sin. I mean these are all, you know, the way we approach life now on the pendulum is because of sinful and uh, broken lives. What it also means then is life off the pendulum is a gift of God's grace. And so that is, a, it is an important thing. We don't get ourselves off the pendulum. It is God's gift of grace that lifts us off the pendulum and gives us a whole new way to live. We'll explore that a little more deeply even this morning as we get to the end of class. But I want to highlight and emphasize that. Life on the pendulum is because of sin and brokenness. Life off the pendulum is a gift of God's grace. And it's part of his salvation work. So things to keep in mind. As we review then, conflicts arise between us as human beings because of the opposing ends of the pendulum swing. So whatever, and I think what I've tried to highlight these last couple of weeks and we will continue to do so, is that there are a plethora of different pendulums, thought processes, beliefs, mindsets that we possess. And so you might be in you know, any one of these number of uh, things. We looked at insecurity, for example, as we wrapped up last week. Insecurity has its own pendulum. And on that pendulum swing, on one end of the insecurity swing, is control. I want to control my environment, I want to control the people around me. I don't want people to, to see inside, so I keep a front you know, that protects me. And so that hides, I can hide behind all of that and nobody sees my insecurities, but on that same insecurity pendulum, I could swing to the other end of that pendulum and withdraw from relationships and keep people at a distance and not let people, you know, not be vulnerable with anybody, and so I can hide that way as well. Isn't that interesting? Either end of the insecurity pendulum is about fear and hiding. We just do it, go about it different ways. And then, wherever I might be on this insecurity pendulum, I'm looking across at somebody else on the other end of the swing. And I don't like the way they do it because it might make me uncomfortable. And that's another key ingredient of understanding the pendulums is we choose our places on the pendulum where we find comfort. It's where we find comfort. So that pendulum swing. Let me read from Philippians chapter 2 to just give you a contrast of what life off the pendulum then is. By God's grace, how can we live if we are off the pendulum? I think there's a picture of it here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." My friends, that is life off the pendulum. You can't do that. You can't live that way on the pendulum it's God's gift of grace love forgiveness that lifts us off and gives us the freedom to live that way because that's living in Christ that's Christ-like living Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 but when we are on the pendulum then there are rivalries there is conceit there is pride it's You're wrong, because you're in a different place on the pendulum. That's what happens. We're not of the same mind and one of court. And when we live on the pendulum, then we are in conflict with one another. There is, it makes unity really difficult anyway. So we're going to be in conflict with one another when we are living and coming at relationships from the position of somewhere on a pendulum. That's what our fights our arguments tend to be about where somebody else is on the pendulum different than us. We've also talked about this idea of seeking the center and it's a fallacy. Seeking the center is a fallacy. It's very popular in psychology, pop psychology, self-help books, those kinds of things. You know, seek center, find balance, So whatever end of the pendulum swing you're on, just try and find the middle ground. Whichever direction you need to come, just find the middle ground. Maybe we can find that together. I'm telling you, it's not true. It's a myth. It doesn't exist. So that um, seeking center is a fallacy. It is based upon personal perspective. What I mean by that is, how do you know what the center is? You're still, val- it's from your perspective, it's still your opinion. You're the one saying, I found center. And it's your, maybe center from your position, your perspective. And somebody else is going to say, no, that's not center. This is center. Because I have found the right center. And then what do we do? Well, I found center for me. It's center for me. You might find your own center. Well, now... That just makes us our own God, which is the next bullet point. So if you're taking notes, seeking the center is fallacy. It's based on personal perspective. It affirms the individual as their own God. Seeking center, this idea, is affirming yourself as your own God. Now, this is a big deal. I mean, you know, we might look at pop psychology and what they're saying as far as seeking center and say, okay, that really doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. But it's more than that. For the believer in Christ, it is way more than that. It is a very serious issue. Because, again, like I said, it's idolatry. It is somebody saying, I am my own God. So I would like to uh, share a few thoughts with you from Luther's large catechism, specifically on the first commandment. So if you're interested in checking out, I'm not going to share the whole thing with you, but I want to highlight a few quotes from his description and his explanation of the first commandment in the large catechism. So the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods. That's why this is so serious. Seeking center, finding balance, saying it's from my perspective and I have now set myself up as my own god is violating the very first commandment. Luther says, what does this mean? Simply, from God's perspective, you shall have me alone as your God. So what does it mean to have a God? Luther goes on and asks the question, what is a God? And the answer, a God means that from which we are to expect all good and in which we are to take refuge in all distress. So to have a God is nothing other than trusting and believing him with the heart. So now you can see how this seeking center, finding my own balance, is really, I'm just looking to myself for comfort. I'm looking to myself to solve distress. I'm looking to myself for these good things and trusting in myself and believing in myself with my heart. This is, this is serious. I don't know how else to say it. Luther goes on and says, I say that whatever you set your heart on and put your trust in is truly your God. So the purpose of the first commandment is to require true faith and trust from the heart, which settles upon the only true God and clings to him alone. It's like saying this, again, from God's perspective. See to it that you... Let me start over. See to it that you let me alone be your God, and never seek another. What are comforting words. God says to each one of us, see to it that you let me alone be your God, and don't seek after another. In other words, whatever you lack of good things, expect it from me. God can, you know, again from this perspective, God says, look to me for good things, and whenever you suffer misfortune and distress, Crawl and cling to me. I will give you enough and help you out of every need. Only do not let your heart cleave to or rest on another. Many a person thinks that he has God and everything in abundance when he has money and possessions. He trusts in them, boasts about them. See, we can put our trust in just about anything. And... Luther is explaining from the First commandments that that's living life on the pendulum. Of course, Luther didn't say it that way, but that's what in fact is happening. You're trusting in something else, money, possessions. He goes on and says, whoever trusts and boasts that he has great skill, prudence, power, favor, friendship, honor, also has multiple gods. Anytime you're trusting in anything other than the one true God. So he says, therefore, I repeat, that the chief explanation of this point is that to have a God is to have something in which the heart trusts in. So you can easily understand what and how much this commandment requires. A person's entire heart and all his confidence must be placed in God alone and in no one else. For to have God, you can easily see is not to take hold of him with our hands or put him in a bag like money or to lock him in a chest like silver vessels instead to have him means that the heart takes hold of him and clings to him to cling to him with the heart is nothing else than to trust him entirely so i could go on and and talk more about his explanation from the large catechism about the first commandment, but i think that makes the point that trusting in anything else other than the one true God for anything, need, comfort, salvation, forgiveness, then you're on the pendulum in one way or another. So by God's gift of grace, he lifts us off the pendulum and enables us through his Holy Spirit to trust him. But God knows that we need to have money to be able to live. Of course he does. And so he provides it. He provides it. So when I'm not... So we are not making our God. Lucille, yes. it's, it's, is the money something you rely on because God has given it to you to buy your groceries? Okay. Are you trusting in it for comfort? Are you trusting in it for security? Are you trusting in it for salvation? No, no. Then, but that's the difference. Yeah, that's the difference. Mm-hmm. yeah, thank you, Lucille. And that's the same thing is going to be true in many ways. There are things in this world that we enjoy, things in this world that we utilize, things in this world that are beneficial to us. The question is, are you trusting in them with your heart for something? Again, whether it be security, whether it be um, to make you feel like you've accomplished something, that you're important, that this is going to mean something when you stand before God. Those things, now they've become a God. We're trusting in them, yeah. difference between being on the pendulum and giving it, seeing it as God's uh, treasure for me to manage here best I can. Well, sure, Leland. So um, the scriptures, and especially Jesus, talk about this frequently. If we see ourselves as stewards of God's good gifts, including all the money or possessions or whatever, skills and knowledge, anything that we think we have, that we are a steward of it for God, then we're trusting God to provide it. We're trusting God for the wisdom to know what to do with it. We're trusting God to say, like Job said, here today gone tomorrow. I mean, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. It's his. That's different than saying it's mine and I'm trusting in it. Yeah. Excellent. Anything else? So, again, seeking the center is a fallacy. It is based on still personal perspective. It affirms the individual as their own God. It doesn't really exist, as I mentioned already, it is still a broken life on a pendulum. Just because you maybe have found what you think is center, you're still on the pendulum. And the pendulum exists because we're broken sinners. So I don't know, That's just because I found the center of the swing doesn't mean that's where I want to be. It's still because of brokenness. It's still because of sin and rebellion that the pendulum is even where we live. So it's still a broken life. The next one is personal pendulum position. There's a tongue twister for you. Personal pendulum position is primarily adopted by comfort level, as I indicated already it's where we're comfortable we might have some things we want to say about it we might say well no mine is the right position that's why i'm comfortable there mine's the best position mine's my position is better than anybody else's position on the pendulum or you know it might just be where i i have the most fun it's just Yeah, exactly, right? (laughs) Who cares if it's right or wrong, better? It's fun, and I like living there. could just be because, again, it's either way, any of these, it's where I find my comfort and what's important to me. And then the last bullet point arrow there is emotions can be helpful in identifying our personal pendulum position as a little bit of the exercise we concluded with last week, was just looking at some of the various emotions we experienced and seeing how they might shed some light on what's going on in our heart and help us recognize if we're on a pendulum. And I say if, but we all know we are. We are on many pendulums. So it helps us you know, understand what this pendulum is all about and where I might be on it. Now, not every emotion, and that's not... I'm not, just like you were bringing up for us, Lucille and Leland, just because we need money and we have some money doesn't necessarily mean that's we're trusting in it like a God. And the same thing with emotions. Emotions are very important and they are given to us by God. He has shared some of, when he made us in his image, he also included emotions. And we see in the Gospels, Jesus expressed a whole variety of emotions. And Jesus was not on a pendulum. So it's okay when I talk to Ed every day. But then I turn and I talk to God and tell him, make sure that you what I say. <laughs> I'm not sure how that works, oh, Lucille. Oh, yeah. But, but what I, my point <laughs> is that emotions are not evil in and of themselves. They expose something to us and about us. And especially, again, our heart. What our heart is trusting in. So, if you're experiencing fear, that might be an indicator of an emotion that would help us reveal where we are on a pendulum. Anxiety would help us recognize the pendulum that we're dealing with where we're on that pendulum. Even anger or hurt. Because again, you recognize these emotions are because of brokenness. Now, Jesus experienced grief, He experienced anger. He experienced um, frustration. These emotions are always related to brokenness. He felt compassion for the people because they were lost, like sheep without a shepherd. He was sad for them. He grieved over Lazarus' death because death is because of the fall and sin and brokenness. He was angry when he cleansed the temple because they had turned it into a, a market instead of a place for people to be with God. So he experienced emotions, and even those emotions, which we sometimes classify as negative emotions, anger, sadness, hurt, they were always because of the brokenness that we live in every day. Imagine that for a moment. We get used to this broken world, right? It's kind of normal for us. Jesus leaving heaven being born as an infant in Bethlehem and living in this broken world surrounded by brokenness and sin and faithlessness and rebellion against his father in heaven every day can you imagine what that was like for Jesus to be bombarded with our brokenness every day and then to take it all upon himself on the cross so again he experienced emotions a whole spectrum he experienced joy, and laughter, and friendship, too. But he experienced some of these emotions because of brokenness, just like we do. And so we experience these emotions, as I've mentioned, and they can be very helpful in helping us understand and see what our pendulums look like, where we're kind of stuck, and what God might be doing to lift us off of those pendulums. Would it be you like off the pendulum in another last Absolutely, okay. absolutely, yeah, thanks. So Melody, point I just want to share it with here. And this and is what I try to emphasize with myriads of pendulums. so you're absolutely correct. And it's part of the transformational work that, that God is doing in our lives. He is taking us off the pendulums all the time. So you're right, Melody, in some area of life, we might be off the pendulum. And we'll describe what that looks like here in a minute what that looks like, and still be on the pendulum in other areas of life. Absolutely. True statement. And that's the way it will be until we're called home. Until we are in heaven in the presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that will be the life and experience for a believer. And the Holy Spirit will continue to point out to us, here's another thing I want to transform in your life. Here's another thing, another pendulum I want to lift you off of and set you free from The Holy Spirit continues to do that work. Can you imagine if he pointed them all out to us at once? It would be overwhelming. And so he works with us very patiently and graciously. So that's uh, some, some review. Let's talk about then what life off the pendulum is. There's a couple of foundations that I think are important for our discussion. The first one is it is a faith response It's just like we were talking about in the explanation for the first commandment. Luther says it's all about faith and trust in the one true God. So this is essential to understanding life off the pendulum. It is faith, a faith response to the work of God. So number one, trusting God and his word. This is what it looked like in the garden before the fall. Adam and Eve trusting God and his word. What does the serpent do when he comes in and uses his craftiness? He gets Adam and Eve to doubt God and to doubt his word. That is the crux of what we're talking about. It's really simple by design. By God's design, it is very simple. And hopefully that gives you comfort and hope even right now to hear that God's design for us as his beloved children and redeemed believers in Christ is simple. He loves us. We trust him. It is a love-trust relationship. He loves us. We have this faith response. We trust him. But we complicate things. And then what we have found now, because of living in a broken world as broken people, second one is that we are holding two seemingly opposing truths in tension at the same time. Before the fall, there weren't opposing truths, didn't have to hold anything in tension. God is love and grace, and He created, and Adam and Eve lived in that, and they enjoyed everything he did. Everything he provided for them, and they enjoyed him in that wonderful, perfect union. After the fall, it does get more complicated. Now God knew that <clears throat> the serpent was going to come and tempt Eve. Sure, because God knows everything. Well, I know, and it's like, why didn't He just tell her to knock it off, stop it? Because God doesn't control. <laughs> It would be easier if he just controlled us, wouldn't it? That's right. I wouldn't have to worry about anything. Yeah. But then we wouldn't be able to respond with faith. There you go. So by God's design in the garden, he created a place where Adam and Eve could live in harmony with him, and they could say no. And they could reject his love. And they could believe a serpent. And they could trust in themselves. Ironically, right? The serpent says, if you do this, you'll be like a god. And they said, I want to do that. I want to trust in myself like I'm my own god. And here we are. So, really has already been to her too. Again, Yes, Melody. We don't know if this was the first try. Yes. It is... It is you know we don't know the scriptures don't tell us but there have been many speculations by theologians who are way smarter than me that say we think this may have been a series of temptations mm-hmm. and and it was building up to something you know to think that the serpent entered the garden one day has one conversation with <laughs> eve and all of a sudden boom <laughs> yeah <laughs> And Adam is pretty negligent. but um, so we don't know. What we're told is what God wanted us to know. however long this process took, whatever you know strategies were employed by Satan, eventually they rebelled. And that's where that's the focus of what God wanted us to know. That evil came into this world, and brokenness came into the world by Adam and Eve's sinful rebellion. These are awesome. Yeah. No, he starts out with something really close to the truth. Maybe not. Right. And actually, the things that the serpent was telling him. Look at it. It looks beautiful, doesn't it? And he says, yeah, it looks beautiful. I bet it's good for food, just like all the other trees are good for food. I bet it is too. And not only that, unlike everything else in the garden, this one makes you like a god. So again, the best liar is the one who has mostly truth and a little lie. But you know, we don't need to dwell on how to be a good liar. So <laughs> we got that. So again, uh, holding seemingly, and that's an, you know, an important word there, seemingly opposing truths intention at the same time. We use phrases like this: sinner and saint. The believer in Jesus Christ is simultaneously... This would seem opposing, right? Either you're a sinner or you're a saint. But what we understand to be true from God's word and his promises and truth about us is the believer in Jesus Christ, the one who is baptized into Christ, is both sinner and saint at the same time. So when you look in the mirror, you see a person looking back at you that is both sinner and saint. Going back to what you said already, Melody, we'll be on some, we'll be on some pendulums and we'll be off some pendulums. Sinner and saint at the same time. We also talk about law and gospel. It's not all law and it's not all gospel. Together, it is law and gospel. One without the other actually does harm. All law does harm. All grace does harm. It actually cements the person in their rebellion. When God took Adam and Eve out of the garden, prevented them from reaching out and eating from the tree of life, put the angel at the gate with the flaming sword so they couldn't go back in. Boy, that sounds like harsh punishment. It's grace. It's grace otherwise they would have been cemented in their condemnation but god provides salvation for them so all law is all condemnation all grace actually says you're fine just the way you are and cements them in their condemnation so the law and gospel we also talk about grace and work We see it from the first pages of the scriptures all the way through. God gives grace and it's followed by work. He created Adam and Eve, placed them in a perfect garden. And what does he say? Be fruitful, multiply and tend the garden. Work. There was work before the fall. So we see this pattern as well. There's grace and work together. What seems like seemingly opposing truths brought together. So this is by faith that we receive this. What happens, though, as you can see the graphic here with that rope that's about stretched and ready to break, because of our broken nature, we see things as an either-or. Like I was just trying to illustrate, either a sinner or a saint, either law or gospel, either grace or works. We try and separate those things. And it results in tremendous stress in your life by trying to separate those things. But we see life as an either-or. It's also where a lot of our conflicts arise with one another. Either you're right or I'm right. Either-or. So that's part of the fall, and it's part of living on the pendulum. But as I've been alluding to multiple times now, Genesis chapter 3, as I just said, the result of eating from that forbidden fruit was death. God said, if you eat from that, you will die. And God is faithful to his promises. And so death entered the world. And Adam and Eve now would face, they immediately faced spiritual death, separated from God. And physical death, 900 years later, or approximately. But death was the result of that. And banishment from the garden. That's law. Right? That's law. But there is also life and redemption. He says to the, to the serpent, with Adam and Eve listening, I'm going to send someone, and he will crush your head. And you will bruise his heel. And we refer to this as the very first gospel. When he promised a savior. So in Genesis 3 there is death and banishment. But there is also life and redemption. Through a promised savior. We hold these things together. They seem opposite and opposing to one another. And yet by faith we believe both to be true. We experience death. Separation from God. At the same time, we also experience life and redemption through Jesus Christ, the Savior. Both are true. So instead of an either-or, it's a both-and. And And again, this can't be finding that center. You don't find center by saying, you know, both-and is a faith moment holding two things that seem to be opposite together at the same time. And what it means is God said it. This is what God said, therefore I believe it to be true. I didn't come up with this on my own. It's what God has revealed. Now there is a picture of the violin because there's still tension, right? The rope is meant to to illustrate tension. Two things pulling on each other until it breaks, either or. But when you tune up a violin, those strings are under some significant tension and it's the only way it works if the violin strings are under tension and tuned just right then the master can play a beautiful song so it's still tension it's a completely different kind of attention rather than either or both and because god said it and he explains it to us that way so first thing about life off the pendulum, it's a faith response. Which is why I've said and continue to be convinced of, life off the pendulum is only available to believers in Jesus Christ. Because it's a faith response to God. Any comments, questions before we flip to the back side of the page? Anything that I could clarify? And first, so it's death and banishment from the garden banishment sent away driven out and the second one is life and redemption thanks Lucille death and banishment life and redemption law and gospel Let's look at Psalm 46 for a minute. What I'd like us to do now is kind of explore this tension idea that I've just been discussing. What are we going to hold in tension? What two things that are seemingly opposed to one another are actually together in God's uh, way of looking at things and describing them for us? So David is writing Psalm 46. He says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. So we're going to hold a couple of things in tension here at the same time. What's in tension in these verses? Well, when David writes this, when he talks about this trouble, he is on the eve of battle. I mean, he's been engaged in war. Most of his life, actually, as king was about war with from From the moments of fighting the giant all the way through to the end, it's been battles for David, even against his own king, King Saul. So there's his life is full of trouble. But what he's talking about here at this moment, we believe, is he's getting ready to go into battle. He's still in wartime, and it looks bad. It looks very bad. And so he says, here's the two things in tension, right? He is in deep trouble, and his help is present, both in." You would think that would be one or the other. In our own lives, on the pendulum, we look at this like, if God was really here taking care of me, answering my prayers, I would be out of this trouble. I wouldn't be experiencing this suffering. I wouldn't be challenged with this broken relationship or A health issue or a financial strain. If God was really here with me I wouldn't be in trouble. That's quite often the way we look at life. That's on the pendulum. You hear those kinds of things all the time. But David says, I'm in trouble and my health is present with me. In trouble. Remember the boys in the furnace? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? What did they say when Nebuchadnezzar is threatening? You either bow down to me now or you're into the furnace. They said, we believe that God is able to rescue us, save us from you and this furnace. But even if he does not, our faith remains in him. And what's the next thing? They're in the furnace. You would think, I mean, they had this great expression of faith, and they were trusting God, and when's he going to swoop in and say, okay, I'm going to be greater than King Nebuchadnezzar and save you from this. He didn't. They went into the furnace, and their help was present with them. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar says, didn't you throw in three? How come I see four? And one's really shiny, glowing like the Son of God what he says. So, trouble and trust that your help is present. So that's part of the tension here. Another part, you listen to this, right? He goes on, and he says, it's not just this war that he's facing the next day. He says, even if the earth gives way, the mountains fall into the sea, the waters roar and foam and overtake the mountains, and they're trembling at its swelling. I mean, these are... Catastrophic problems is what David is referring to. I mean, how could, he's saying the world is falling apart. My world is falling apart, but I'm not going to fear. He says, "There will not. Therefore, we will not fear, even though there's all this catastrophic issue and my world is falling apart." By faith, I will not fear. We really? So is David uh, expressing this out loud to his uh, comrades' troops? Probably. I mean, that's probably what's happening and penning the psalm at the same time, and they're probably going to sing this in preparation for the battle. And the troops may be down with lost their enthusiasm. Maybe so. And maybe they're on the pendulum, and they think either or and they're probably on the swing side of we're doomed. We're dead men walking. And yet David's, you know, provides this psalm, this song for them to hear. Yeah, we're in deep trouble. But God is our refuge and strength. He's with us. And the world, our world is falling apart and it seems like it's going to end. But by faith in God, I'm not going to fear both things true at the same time. And when they finished singing the psalm, I think the battle still happened. It still looked like the world was going to end for them the next day. Those things didn't, but their whole perspective changes when they're off the pendulum. The third thing that we can see in tension here is just how overwhelming and hard life can be. But at the same time, God's steadfast presence and love are real and true. So those are things that, you know, that's life off the pendulum, is holding these seemingly opposite or opposing truths at the same time. Like I said, I tried to emphasize, I mean, how can you feel confident in the midst of your world falling apart? Faith. Faith in God, who is steadfast in his presence and love. So the question is, what kind of tension is this? Referring to the first side, you know, you either have that rope ready to snap or you have the violin ready to play. What kind of tension is it? I think I would call it good tension. It's good tension. May not be fun, certainly isn't easy, but it's good tension. Both are true at the same time, very different than the brokenness of life on the pendulum which says it's one or the other. That's the pendulum swing. It's either one or the other. Either I'm in trouble and doomed or help is coming, one or the other. Either life is falling apart tomorrow or God's going to rescue me out of this trouble, one or the other. And yet what we see here in Psalm 46 is life is falling apart and God is holding you in his hands. Let's look at Psalm 22. You're going to be very familiar with this one. Jesus quotes it from the cross. David writes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, and I, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our father trust our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. So let's let's look at this one for a minute. What is the tension in this scripture passage? What do you what do you see? What two things are we gonna hold together that seem to be in opposition? That'd be on one side. What's on the other side, Lucille? Feeling forsaken. Forsaken. Yep. So let's put this together for a minute, because we got two different opposing ideas going at work here. So let's go with the trust first. The other side of, you know, the thing that we're gonna hold together with that one is David is feeling devastated. I think he's my God, my God, where are you? You haven't heard me during the day, you haven't seen me stay awake all night. I'm devastated. I'm still going to trust. I'm still trusting. See, those are two things that seem opposed. But we're holding them together. And then, the idea of being forsaken. Really? Is God going to forsake? He says, I won't forsake you. Because, and, and we can trust his word, because he's holy. So on the one side, we feel forsaken. But at the same time, we know God is holy. And we know he doesn't change and we know he keeps his promises because he's faithful and good. So, I feel forsaken. And, and truly, Jesus Christ on the cross didn't just feel forsaken. He was forsaken. When he cries out these these words from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because he did. God abandoned Jesus on the cross as he carried our sins. So, but David is saying here, I feel forsaken, yet God is, I know he's holy. And so he keeps his promises. There's one more. So we have forsaken and holy, we have devastated and trusting. Can you see the third one? Delivered as Delivered is one of them, and the other one is death. Death and deliverance. Seemingly opposing ideas. And yet, together, by faith, we believe that this is true because God said it. So, I mean, David and both, and then Christ saying it later, it's about death. And yet, we know we'll be delivered. And you deliver them. That's how he finishes that. And David was delivered. And Christ was delivered. Delivered from death, rose again on the third day. And we experience death every day and deliverance every day. Seemingly opposite ideas, and yet, by faith, we hold them in tension. So again, what kind of tension would we say this is? I think it's good tension. It's good tension. Both are true. So faith. That's the first foundational truth of living life off the pendulum. The second is faithful application of that truth. Faithful application of it. See, it's one thing to know something. It's completely different to live that something. So let's look at Romans 6, verses 3 through 6 for a moment. This is the baptismal remembrance we include at every funeral or memorial service. So reading from Romans 6... Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So you're already, you know, you're hearing it, right? There are seemingly opposing truths that Paul is saying we believe simultaneously. We hold on to them at the same time. Both are true. We go on, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So there's lots of opportunities here to see a couple of things that we hold together by faith. And it's not our intellect, it's not our reason, it's not us just trying to sort it out and say, okay, yeah, I can mash those together. They can't be mashed together. It's by faith, trusting that God's word is true and that both and are true. So, one of the things we see right away is there's death. Death and buried, which is the consequences of sin. We also see baptized, cleansed, forgiven, and alive. We see that we were buried with Christ, and then we see that we are alive and walking with Christ. Both and. And Then we see that death separates, but also we've been joined together and united with him. So we know for sure, I mean, that's one of the things, the promises of the fall is, if you eat from the tree, death, separation. And yet here we have a statement, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will also be united with him in a resurrection like his. So again, death separates us, but in Christ we have been joined and united. He speaks about the old self. We know that our old self was crucified the new self is alive and as we talked about already it's a great picture of both the sinner and the saint simultaneously living this life sinner and saint that we be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin sinner and saint at the same time Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. he says, I've been crucified, but I'm still living a life in the flesh. And he says, it's Christ who lives in me. I do this by faith in the Son of God. So, on one end, you know, the two things that we're holding together at the same time is one, that we've been crucified with Christ, and at the same time, we are alive in Christ. Both are true at the same time. Dead and alive. Crucified with Christ. Alive in Christ. And I, you know, I don't know, I think those preparation, preparations, prepositions are important in that moment. Buried with, alive in. Buried with Christ, alive in Christ. And then the last one, Romans 12, verses 1 through 12. Paul has been, obviously, chapters 1 through 11. And here's the thing about the book of Romans. It was a letter. It would have been read from verse 1, chapter 1, all the way through to the end. We take little snippets of it. And so we have to make sure we understand these things in context. Paul says... I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, which is what he's been talking about for 11 chapters. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. All fall short of the glory of God. All are condemned, except for those in Christ, in chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So we get to chapter 12, our chapter 12, and he says, I I appeal, I plead with you. By the mercies of God, because of all the mercies that you have received, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Remember, we were talking about sinner, saint, law, gospel, grace, work. Receiving grace, then God says, do this. You can do this now that you couldn't do before. Before, you could not offer your life as a living sacrifice to God. But now, because of the grace and mercy you've received, you can offer your life as a living sacrifice before you were blemished and tarnished by sin now you have been made clean and can offer that sacrifice a living sacrifice to the god who loves you a living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable to god which is your spiritual worship verse 2 do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So here's the two things we're holding together at the same time. We are holding at one hand that I am unclean. I am blemished and, as I said, just ruined by sin, and I am in need of mercy. Paul says, in view of God's wonderful mercies, I am that person who needs mercy. I need grace. I need forgiveness. At the same time, I am able to live a life that is holy and acceptable and pleasing to God. How does that work? You can't mash those two things together. You can't take the person who is broken by sin and in need of mercy and then turn around and say, but I'm going to live a life that pleases God. Doesn't work. Can't do it. And yet, what Paul says is both of these are true you are in need of god's mercy and grace and forgiveness and because you are cleansed by his mercy and forgiveness in the work of christ you can offer your life as this holy living acceptable gift to god then he goes on verse 2 right do not be conformed to this world the reality is we live in a broken world that's why paul says don't be conformed to that it's broken don't live that way. Don't believe those things. Don't live by that mindset. Don't live on that pendulum. It's broken. At the same time, we can live a life that's discerning and, and know what God's good and perfect will is in our life. So we can live in a broken world and at the same time, live a life that is pleasing to God. And recognize and experience his will that we know is good, acceptable, and perfect. So, I want to read again from Galatians 2.20 to wrap up this morning. I didn't read the whole verse, so I'll start again. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Living by faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who loves you and gave his life for you. Almighty God and our Father in heaven, we thank you so very much for your love and grace that you have poured out upon us in so many ways, and especially through your Son, Jesus Christ, who loves us and gave his life for us. So it's in his name that we pray. Amen.